check, check, check. One, two, one, two. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Groundings Podcast. I am here with the lovely, the phenomenal, <laughs> the amazing, the woman who's wearing a pin that says "Women Come First. Yes, we do. We should. Bilfina, aka Golden Woman, on Twitter. How are you, Bilfina? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited to finally be doing this episode with you. Me too. It's been a long time in the making. Yeah, so definitely. Good. So, for listeners who don't know, Bilfina is an activist, organizer, writer. Um, all around badass, a good Bow. friend, of, a good friend of mine as well. <laughs> this is Bay right here, and I'm not only interviewing someone I look up to, but a friend as well. Oh my God, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> <laughs> Hi everyone. So I mean, Devin covered it all. Badass is all you need to know about me. But yeah, I'm a writer, organizer, abolitionist, uh, working mainly in Baltimore City. Also originally from Liberia, West Africa. Hello, immigrants. Hi. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of my work explores abolition, organizing, school to prison pipeline uh, that we'll be talking about today, and womanism. Um, so that's a little bit about me. <laughs> Before we dive into your actual organizing and stuff like that, yeah. a lot of people hear the term school to prison pipeline. It's almost became a buzzword on social media nowadays, but they don't know what it actually means, mm-hmm. right? Like they'll, I think they have a vague idea of it, but they don't actually know the mechanisms that make the school to prison pipeline. So can you talk a little bit about what your functioning definition of that is? Yeah, so I like to keep it simple. School to prison pipeline is basically what are the systems and structures and punishments set up in schools that lead specifically black and brown children into prisons, right? So whether it's suspensions, expulsions, or uh, what happens specifically in Baltimore at North Ave, which is called a mediation, which is not. And, and as a result of that, black and brown children end up in prisons. And so a lot of people struggle to see the connection because we have this idea that schools are a neutral place um, and that all children are granted the same accessibility in schools as everybody else. When the reality is that that is not so um, and the punishments and systems set up in schools are actually leading black children into prisons rather than into living and thriving as children. It sounds like you're saying the idea that the capitalist white supremacist school system mm-hmm. is structured to either function like a jail mm-hmm. or just to send black and brown kids to jail. Legit. That's right. it. And I'll talk a lot about Baltimore because that's that's why I work and, and live. Um, some Even the schools, the way that the schools look on the outside, there are schools in Baltimore City where there are barely any open windows in the schools, where there's no artwork up on the wall, um, where teachers aren't really saying good morning to students when they walk through, where there are um, metal detectors in the school and students having to get pat it down before they even walk walk into the building um, where there are resource officers carrying guns or having access to guns in schools and so a lot of the schools where there are predominantly black students it is it is the norm to see police officers in your school and to see them I mean we all saw the video in Baltimore where a black police officer slapped a, a, a kid and so the question becomes what would have happened and how would have that have escalated if he had a gun on him mm-hmm. which Baltimore City School Board just actually uh, voted for mm-hmm. school resource officers to be armed in schools. You're able to focus and ground it in Baltimore because mm-hmm. I think it is a city that one, it, it represents so many other black cities, yes. right? It has its own unique history, but it also sort of represents the problem in many black school districts and mm-hmm. cities yeah. and, and towns and, and areas. 
But we also see the militarization of schools all across the country. Yes. Where quote unquote resource officers are placed into elementary schools. Yes. First off, is there sort of data that shows you know, black and brown kids are expelled more or mm -hmm. that those that have been expelled go to prison more and mm -hmm. stuff like that? Yeah, so I actually, um, in January, I released Why Do All the Black Girls Have an Attitude, which was an infographic as part of the Everyday Freedom show that looked specifically at, um, this one was looking at black girls in Baltimore City Schools. So black girls are four times likely to be suspended than white girls um, and two times likely to be expelled than white girls. Wow. wow. Crazy, right? But then we look on the national skills where a lot of people tend to have a focus on black boys, of course, mm -hmm. but black boys are three times more likely to be suspended than white boys, but black girls are six times more likely to be suspended than all populations, wow. right? And so that number wow. is high. And then specifically in Baltimore, although black girls make up about 60% of the population, they're 90% more likely to be referred to a DJS facility. So black girls are making up baby booking in Baltimore. Wow, mm -hmm. I see. And I know that recently I was looking at numbers where it shows for juvenile detention centers, it's mostly black girls. Yes. We know black men sort of have a larger number now in the prisons, although that yeah. is changing right now. Mm -hmm, it um, so it's interesting to see like younger black girls yes. criminalized as early as school. Preschool. Preschool, mm -hmm. right? That's wild. Mm -hmm. That is wild. What was the, the study that came out? I think it was Brown that, that preschool black girls are more likely to be suspended than any of their peers. Mm. And the first question I was like, people are getting suspended in preschool. I'm like, school to prison pipeline starts yeah. very early. I mean, I didn't even remember in in preschool yeah. elementary school even really anyone getting suspended like i remember a few kids who got like in school suspension yeah which is a whole nother problem in itself yes it's uh, useless in school suspension is done a little bit different everywhere mm -hmm. um but to my understanding and what i experienced i was in there all the time you're essentially forced into solitude. It's kind yeah. of like solitary confinement in a way, but you go into a room where there's no talking. Nothing. You're not allowed to look at anyone else. In my school that I went to, we actually had a divider in between oh, students wow. so they couldn't even like look left and right and see another mm -hmm. student. And it was just, it was horrible. And then the teachers just pass you work and be like, here, complete this. And you don't yeah. even have the background information to complete the yeah. work. And then exactly. you get back into class and they're like, why are you behind? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe you should have not sent me to suspension. Yep. Like, yeah. Then I would know what is going on in yep. class. They remove you from mm -hmm. the classroom setting, but still want you to complete the same work exactly. with no actual teacher to have taught you. And then the cycle continues because now you're behind in school and your self-esteem is low and you, mm -hmm. you either get bullied or you start bullying people, right? Mm -hmm. And what we find is that the research shows that students who are suspended are more likely to... Um, enter the prison system, right? And then also students who are suspended are more likely to be hungry. Um, because especially if we look at black children and we look at class, a lot of them do depend on schools to feed them. And so when a child is being suspended out of school, that means now this child has to figure out where to eat, right? And so in Baltimore specifically, we have this issue where a lot of shop owners um, and corner stores are, are seeing an increase in children coming in and then they're going to call the police. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why are the children coming into this right. there? Why? Because they're out of school. And right. if they were in school, we wouldn't have this problem. And you actually work with an organization that sort of tries to tackle some of these issues, don't you? Yeah, so I work for Restorative Response Baltimore. We are a community um, 
building and conflict resolution organization. We have both a restorative justice arm and a restorative practices arm working in schools, but also working in the juvenile justice system and doing the same work in juvenile justice system. The goal is to divert kids out. So at any level from the Baltimore Police Department to the state's attorney office to DJS um, or baby booking, as we call it, a kid can be diverted out of the system. So my goal is we say to principals, instead of suspending and expelling students, what if we move towards something more restorative mm. process? Um, and all of our work is done through race and equity. 97% of the kids that are referred to us are black children. Mm. So it once again, the stats tells wow. you who's being suspended and who's going to the system. Mm -hmm. I was actually at a conference and it was funny because we had a picture up and the picture was predominantly black students in a circle. And this guy was like, I'm just confused as why there's a lot of black children in this picture. What about white children? And I was like, in Baltimore, white children are not being sent to us because right. they're not being, they're not getting right. punitive consequences. Right, exactly. Whereas black children are. So mm -hmm. restorative practices and restorative justice had to be for us. That's blaring, mm -hmm. blaring. I remember a few weeks ago, you in a group chat that we're in, you sent yes. statistics yes. about just sort of the sheer numbers for the past year. And it was like thousands of black kids. Yep. Then the sort of the number dropped and then it was like Latino and native children. Yep. And then way at the bottom was white kids. Yep. And this, you could just see the clear kind of structure that was there. Every stat, it was like 1,500 black children to white children. Mm -hmm. And then the thing I always like to bring up about the stats also is that that number increases with black disabled children, mm -hmm. right? And that's what a lot of people don't see is that if this number is high for quote unquote able-bodied black children, now the numbers for children who aren't are even um, one of the biggest things is we have an epidemic of lead poisoning in Baltimore. Mm. That is, Corinne Gaines had lead poisoning, Freddie Gray had lead poisoning. And a lot of schools don't recognize lead poisoning has a cognitive impact mm. on the ability of a child, whether it's in school or emotional. Um, and that is a, is a disability. And so we see an increase for suspensions in students with lead poisoning as well. And, and it, it's so crazy because I look at the data every day and I'm looking at North Ave, which is where all school things related in Baltimore. And I'm like, y'all, are y'all are y'all not embarrassed by this number? But but they aren't. So right. here we are. Right. <laughs> here well, we are. Because to them, they just think that black people and black children are just inherently bad. Yes. And that's that on that, right? right? And and you'd be surprised at how like ingrained it has even become in black educators. Mm -hmm. Um. Whereas part of our process, a lot of people are always shocked when we say we don't do police officers in our process, and they're like, what? I don't feel safe. What do you mean? I'm like, what is it that you think that being you're you're in a grown at your big age, <laughs> at your big age, you're being circled up with a child, and you're asking for reinforcement from police officers mm. with gun in a room. Right. What does that say about you? Right. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, we've been around for 20 years. Of those 20 years, never have we had any outbreak of violence in any of our circle processes. Right. Yet we still have North Ave who is saying we need police officers mm. in restorative practices. It, it just don't make no sense. Well, let's get into that a little bit. Your actual yeah. process that you do. Because mm -hmm. from my understanding, you go into schools mm -hmm. and you're doing restorative justice processes that mm -hmm. you pretty much are trying to cut the school to prison pipeline, mm -hmm. right? Um, so tell me about what the actual process can look like. I know y'all have a few different ways you probably yeah. do Yeah, so the main process we use is called community conference. And so the way that works is at any time, our process is free to all Baltimore City public schools. They can refer on a limited amount of cases 
So once something happens, we usually say call us in before the fight. Like usually schools know when there's something brewing. Yeah. Um, they can send a referral, fights, bullying. We do stabbing cases, shooting, all of that. And once once we get a referral of facilitator trained, we, we train our facilitators, is assigned to a case. The facilitators cause everyone involved in um, or impacted, right? And so we call the main people and we say, who else do you think has it been impacted who else do you think needs to be here? We prep all of those people. Our prep process is about 90% because the goal is we want to figure out what are the gaps that we're missing? Um, is there any safety things we need to know? And the goal is also, we always want to give kids as much autonomy and agency as possible. So when we do a circle process, a lot of adults struggle with it because we're taking away their power. Right. Um, and so we sit in a circle, we ask what happened? How were you impacted? What were you thinking? What do you need to make it better? And so one of the questions we never ask is why. And people are always like, but what about why? And I'm like, as, even as an adult, if someone asks you why, you instantly get defensive. Because <laughs> yeah. it's like, I don't know yeah. why. Like, you I mean, know. sometimes it doesn't even matter. It doesn't and that, matter. That's really a question. That means you're just trying to take sort of a moral position yes. at that point. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we tell people all the time, this is not a court case. We don't do evidence. We don't do right or wrong. You just won't tell us what happened. And so everyone in the circle gets to hear at the same time. Everyone gets to to speak on how they were impacted and then we have an agreement phase a lot of people who are used to more punitive systems there's this idea you know in a retributive paradigm a person who's done harm has no say right there is no accountability to them because they're they're the monster they're right. the one who's done harm right. we don't do that in our process if we're coming to an agreement agreement could be anything from you need to get mentoring to stay after school. We've had people even say things like cut my grass, clean the windows. <laughs> and we have cases where kids have like broken windows and it's like part of the, the right. process was them having to fix it. But the most important part is that if a kid or anyone in a circle process said, I don't want to do that, they don't have to. And so people are always like taken aback by that because they think, why are you giving them options? They're right. the harm doer right. here. And we're like, so let's unpack that. Right. <laughs> um, and what we found, we have a 93% compliance rate and we do restitution as well. People are more likely to follow agreements that they have a say in and feel like they have an agency in the process. So we sign the agreement and then we follow up um, usually we ask them for a deadline to see. In a school system, usually we ask the school, don't suspend the kid, please allow us to go through this process because we can't take a restorative process and put it in a retributive paradigm. Like, it's just not going to work. Can you, for the listeners who might not yeah. understand these terms, restorative and retrib retributive, especially retributive, that's something that a lot of people miss. That's actually how our justice, quote unquote, system in the U.S. is built upon, right? Yeah. Um, can you just briefly just sort of explain what you mean when you use those terms? Yeah, retributive is all about punishment and a punishment paradigm um it has nothing to do with real justice that's something i always talk about is that a lot of people who use words like justice and accountability have no idea what justice and accountability means and for them justice and accountability means punishment and that's what they associate it with usually for justice means that i need to be able to make this person feel the same pain that i felt rather than i we need to figure out as a community what went wrong here and how do we transform this to prevent it from happening again Mm -hmm. And so in a restorative paradigm, the goal is to restore the community back to where it was. But then we also have an added layer, which is transformative work, right? And the goal is not to restore the community, but to completely transform the work, what's happening, which is part of the work that I do. So if a kid does something, it's not let's just have a conference and get back to where we were. But 
This kid has said, you know, I did this as a result of lack of access to food, lack of access to adults who care, lack of access. So then we need to go back as a community and say, how do we make up for the needs? And so those are the big differences. And it's so crazy because I feel like retributive is such a it's such a Western concept. Because if you really do research, like restorative practices and transformative practices is embedded in people of color culture, especially when we look at indigenous Africans and Native Americans, First Nations people. The, the idea of punishing people is, is pretty new. <laughs> uh, prisons are pretty new. They didn't always yeah. exist. So those are some of the, the main differences between the two. Mm-hmm. Well, prisons have essentially been naturalized now, yes. meaning that they're a natural occurrence in human mm-hmm. society, right? Um, we know that the sort of capitalist white supremacist logics, they have certain things they do. They biologize, mm-hmm. naturalize, historicize, and then they'll essentialize. So mm-hmm. prisons have been essentialized. We've been taught that they're essential to society, yes. and they've been sort of naturalized. But in reality, they're, they're pretty much a creation of modernity. And before that, methods of justice or retribution or punishment varied widely from society to society, but there was never a prison structure per se, right? Yeah, I love how you broke that down. Exactly. Yeah, That's exactly. exactly how and, it is. and that kind of applies to anything from race to gender to, to anything, right? Your practice and the process reminds me of is a lot of sort of Paolo Freire, um, mm-hmm. his radical pedagogy, right? And it was this he basically was able to create, or really document, I don't like saying create because yeah. other people were already doing it, right? Yeah. He just sort of put names to it. But this process of cultural circles where you could teach and radically change society through mutual understanding, dialogue, from breaking the teacher-student structure yes. to giving everyone agency. And, and that's very similar to, yes. to, I think, what y'all do. Yeah, especially restorative practices, right? Because we always talk about, like, there's restorative justice is a reactive process. There's, of course, there is the whole um, pedagogy of restorative justice, but the actual processes are reactive. This is where restorative practices come in and part of the work that we do also. Um, I do targeted circles with Black girls in a school that I'm, I'm in. And, and the goal is that we need to do the front end work for children so that when something does happen, they have the tools to be able to navigate. Same thing with with schools, right? How do we build relationships? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we build empathy for one another? Because if I don't have empathy and understanding for you, when something happens, I'm less likely I'm going to want to be restorative mm-hmm. at all. Um, and so that that is why we always have to keep restorative practices, restorative justice together because they can't exist without each other. Right. It's going to seem like a stupid question, but <laughs> never. <laughs> how how successful has the pro- well? Okay, well, yeah. actually, we can go deeper on the process yeah. first before I even ask that question, mm-hmm. right? Say there was someone who has done wrong to someone, mm-hmm. like one student to another. Yeah. You pull them into a circle of sorts. So mm-hmm. give me the details of it a little bit more. Yeah. So specifically, when we're we're doing on site work, is we begin if there's something that's happening right there on the spot. Because that's the questions we always get from people like, but this takes too long, but what happens? No, baby, it doesn't. (laughs) Because prisons take long as well. um, And they don't do any good for us. But we first start with, in the heat of it, we do what is called restorative questions. The goal is that we want to get the child to begin to come down from whatever is getting them upset or even the adult. Mm-hmm. And so we ask the same questions. What happened? What are you thinking? Who do you, else do you, do you think has been impacted by this? And then we ask the kid, hey, would you like um, for this to become a formal conference? As I always like to make a point, all of our processes is voluntary. And that is essential 
specifically for Black children. Being that Black children have grown up in a society where the, their choices have been taken away from them, things has been done to them instead of with them um, and without permission, it's important that throughout our process we're asking them for permission. We'll prep them separate and then we'll go to the next kid. Then we'll say, hey, like who else do you think was involved? Adults like to think they know the story. Teachers be like, yeah, this is who did wrong. And it's like, the kids be like, nah, that's not even what happened. Like, kids will tell you the truth. Like, they be like, that's not even what happened. But it also goes back to this idea that students don't have agency and yep. teachers think they know more about their lives than that. Also, it's interesting that the U.S. school system runs like a capitalist enterprise, yes. right? Where the teachers are the bosses and these are the workers and they know all about them. Mm -hmm. and, and, or even some even look at students as, as dollar signs and numbers, yes. right? Yes. Through the standardized testing or funding, different things like that. So we it's very dehumanizing. Every day. every day in schools with teachers who, it's like, I remember one teacher I had went up to her, one of my students had came in and was like, you know, Miss B, like, I got kicked out the class. And I was like, why did you get kicked out the class? And, and they were like, they explained to the teacher that they had a conflict with another student and they told the teacher, I, I can't sit next to this student. Like, I, I, I have a conflict with them. I might fight, fight again. Now, anybody with sense would say, okay, <laughs> let me listen to this kid. Let like, me that's actually him. very responsible, right? Adults exactly. do that all the time. You know, if you don't like someone, you're going to argue or fight with them. You're going to remove yourself from the situation. And we don't see anything wrong with adults to it. But mm -hmm. this teacher kicked the student out and basically said, I'm not going to explain anything to you. I'm mm -hmm. not going to explain myself. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, I sat there and said, why is it that you view this child as, as not worthy enough of an explanation of why you're doing this. Would you say that to a friend? Would you say that to a spouse? And so and so we tend to see where a lot of teachers believe that like they're the superior in the classroom, like what they say go. But even more importantly is that teachers don't have a whole child approach. Like children don't leave their lives at the door when they walk right. in, you know? So right. it's like this whole thing of like children come and it's like sit up straight, pay attention, mm -hmm. and adults don't even do that. And so one of the things we always say to look at that, um, teachers have to recognize how their own personal biases and outside of biases, own personal emotions impact the way that they see a student, right? So there's a difference in how I'm going to interact with a student if I had eight hours of sleep, had some coffee, even if the students are calling, I'm like, yeah, cool, let's go. I'm having a great day. Right. But if I ain't had no sleep, my little boo's acting out, I'm having a bad day. I'm gonna be like, y'all need to shut up and sit in the seat. Yeah. And so we have to also go to that again, like restorative justice and restorative practices means doing a lot of internal work um, of knowing where you're standing so you don't continue to project onto these little black kids. Right. But even more, there's a cultural aspect. I love this example I heard at a talk of the cultural differences in how African-American parents speak to the kids versus white children, right? And so white people are known as can be passive in their communication to their children. Whereas black people are very much, um, we're not monolithic, but we tend to be very straightforward with mm -hmm. the children. And so you have little Dwayne and you got little, I don't know, Forrest, right? Forrest. Obviously Forrest is the white kid. <laughs> I actually went to school with a black kid named Forrest. That's oh, funny. That's so funny. <laughs> Ashley. Ashley. Kimberly. Um, Ashton. 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 Bentley. Bentley. Oh my God. What, what was the celebrity that named their child? Like um, Cinnamon Apple Racer? But so Ashton is the white kid. Dwayne is the black kid. And you go to Ashton and you say, Ashton, don't you think it's time to put the scissors away? Now, Ashton is used to passive commands in his house so Ashton says oh this is not a question this is a command I'm gonna go put the scissors away now you come to Lil Dwayne Dwayne don't you think it's time to put the scissors away 
well, I'm used to my mom giving me demands as in if she wants me to put the scissors away, she'll say, put the scissors away. So what you're giving me is a question and therefore you're giving me a choice. So no, I'm not ready to put the scissors away. And now you have a high population of teachers are white women who don't know how to communicate with black children. And so now she sees that as defiant. Mm -hmm. So it's like, go to the office because I told you to put the scissors away and you didn't put the scissors away. That in itself is just a little small example of the way that kid black children are um, susceptible to punitive punishment all because of culture, all because mm-hmm. of language. You know, education and the school system yeah. and schools, they're they're foundational to the all of society, right? Yes. Not just what we're taught, but how we're taught. Yes. Um, and so to me, I think what you do, well, it's interesting because on a like sort of more grand scale, right? Yeah. You probably have a lot of people who see what you do as small or insignificant, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you get that a lot. Oh. To me, that's stupid <laughs> because <laughs> because we have to understand that restorative practices, if they're being taught at a young age, yeah. then that then hopefully the goal is for them to take those into their real life and into their jobs and into yeah. situations with you know interacting with anyone, yeah. right? Yeah, and we see that I, my girls that I've been working with for almost two months. I've already had teachers saying like, oh my God, the way that they're showing up in the classroom is really, really different. All of a sudden, um, they're taking more accountability and more responsibility. I have a student, um, she calls me mom. He's so crazy. I'm like, girl, I can't be your mom. But she was known as the problem child of the school. Everything that came up, her name came up. And then y'all, we have a whole family in here. Right. Um, We don't mind. Yeah, we got a little baby comrade. And so- Future comrade. Yeah, no, future comrade, future prison abolitionist coming for y'all. And so, and so she's, she's always known as the problem child. And I remember we were having a circle and it was a tough day for my girls. And she came up to me and she said, Miss B, I'm having a really tough day. I think I need to step outside. Now for teachers, that was a shocker because this little girl, when she ready to go, she go. She don't care who it is. But for her to be able, because it's not even just about punishment, but it's about how do we teach black children to feel all range of their emotions mm-hmm know how to healthily express all range of their right. emotions and adults being able to carry that, exactly. right? And so that's the goal is that I want my, it's not, I always say restorative practices, restorative justice is not something that you do, it's something that you are. And if we're using it as a form of a lot of teachers, oh my God, a lot of a lot of white people were finding, even black people use restorative practices or restorative justice as like a treat for kids. And it's like, no, that's, yeah. not, that's not how that's it horrible. works. It's like, you get restorative practices, you don't get it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's no, actually no. the opposite of what's supposed to happen. That's the opposite. And it's getting bad because, you know, restorative justice is starting to become institutionalized. A lot of institutions are starting to quote unquote do restorative justice. We see schools all the time who's like, they don't want to use our process because they swear to God they have a process that works. And we go in and we see the process and we're cringing because we're like, this is this is horrible. Your idea of restorative justice is sitting kids in a circle and preaching at them for 20 hours and then be like, all right, cool, we did what we had to do, mm. move away. Um, and then don't see any change and wonder why. So that's why I always like to say like restorative practices require emotional competency. Even as an adult, if you don't have emotional competency, it's not gonna work for you because mm. you want kids to do this. And it's like, maybe you're also very toxic and you need to go look at that. And how do you show up in your romantic relationship if you can't even show up restoratively with kids. The sort of restorative practices 
that your organization uses, mm -hmm. right? That you that you say has been very successful. Mm -hmm. They could carry into life outside of the school for yes. adults and sort of teaching lessons. I think maybe with the recent death of Nip death of Nipsey Hussle, for example, yeah. or various contradictions that we in the Black community are still actively reasoning through. Yeah. The first part of believing in restorative justice is believing in someone's ability to be restored yes. or to restore, right? Um, and that's a very, very hard lesson for where we are right now and the traumas that we're working through. So can you talk a little bit about the, the lessons that maybe we could take into like adult life and, and everyday interactions and how we work through these contradictions? Yeah, so we also, it's crazy because we also work with adults too. You know, like I said, we do everything from shootings to stabbings, auto theft. So we see some hard cases that we're like, are people really going to be able to walk through this? And what the lesson is, is that oftentimes because of how um, individualistic Western society is and how much time or lack of time we spend on really getting in touch with how we feel in our life is what we find, especially with adult cases, is that they get to hear, when we ask the question, what happened? And a lot of people is like, where, where should I start when, when I explain what happened? We say, wherever you want to start. And the reason why is every time we sit in a circle, someone says something that that person didn't know they were struggling with. Whether it's like, I don't have access to food. I don't have access to a job. My father just passed. I have diabetes. Like we hear, and people are sitting like, what? that's what you're dealing with i have cases where people have come in like i need three thousand dollars i need my restitution right now and by the end of the conference they're like i don't even want any money from mm. you and so what we learn from that is that this our processes slow us down like we're so used to responding so quickly um to everything um and responding from sometimes a place of privilege whereas through, through a restorative process, you get to truly hear and see people for who they are beyond the, the crimes or bad things that they've mm -hmm. done. In our processes, we don't use language like victim and offender because we don't believe that oftentimes there is a victim or offender because we can get a case from a police report and it says it. And in the conference, we're like, oh, you harmed that person. Let's mm -hmm. talk about the harm you've done to them as well to leave them here. Mm -hmm. And so I remember I presented the the question on Insta on Twitter, I said, for prison abolitionists and for people doing restorative and transformative justice work, what would be the process we would go about for, for, for Eric Holder, right? Like, what does that look like for us as a community? What would be the process for Nipsey, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's hard, because even as a prison abolitionist, there's some crimes where I'm like, oh my God, like, go to jail. Like, I just want you to rot in right. jail, go right. to jail. But, but, but I have to always remember, one, there's social factors that lead people to places that they are oftentimes i sit and i think like people are like this is a terrible crime like i'm pretty sure you can make the same big crime if you could or even people from prison i'm like have you stolen something before mm -hmm. i don't know about y'all but i've stolen things before oh, yeah. right and oh, i'm yeah. not in prison for it <laughs> right i do some things that there are people in prison for right now so there's also that aspect of it of like it's not about the gravity of the crime it's about what is your social economic factors that allows you to get out of certain crimes that other people cannot get out of and then we have to contextualize that right. and so the lesson i always say for people is legit listen just just listen empathy you have to build that we don't got no empathy people think they got empathy they don't right at all. <laughs> a lot of people think they do they don't have empathy. you don't have empathy until you sit in a circle with someone who has harmed you and you looking in their eyes and your empathy is tested me personally working with people who are incarcerated yeah. some of the quote-unquote crimes they've done are hard to sit there and listen to and reason yeah. with but it really does build up this like you just said empathy right mm -hmm. you have this understanding that 
capitalism is such a grinding mm -hmm. machine that we want to quickly place someone in a, in a yeah. box and keep it moving. Yeah. But you have to view someone's humanity, even when they've done what you would consider something horrible, right? And yes. that's something that prison abolition really helps us see. And the fact that you can teach that to children to say, this person might have slapped me, might have yeah. stole my laptop or yeah. something. But yeah. I can see them as a whole human and see why they did that mm -hmm. or maybe if maybe if I can't even forgive them yeah. the fact that I can at least understand it makes me not hate them yep. you know what I mean yep and that's it I had a kid he was like um him and his little boy got into a fight and his he like busted his boy's lip and we're in the circle and I'm like boy how we finna because the little kid was like I ain't doing nothing wrong I don't know what you're talking about Miss B nope not me and finally, as we kept breaking it down, he finally said to the little boy, he said, um, well, the reason why I punched you was because I felt left out. Now, straight off the bat, an adult or anybody here and I'd be like, so you punched him? Really? Right. But when you sit down in this kid, because that's why we always say, what were you thinking? Because people process things very differently um, than, than we do. And he was like... I really felt left out and you did something to me I didn't think you'd ever do to me. And so my first response was to hit you. That's all I knew. And then we have to think about socialization at home mm -hmm. as well. An adult case I had, this case, it, it will stay with me for the rest of my life um, because of what happened after. But one of my, he's an adult, he, um, well, he was 17 at the time, he stole in a car. So it was an auto theft case, which is automatically a felony level case um, because of the car, the, the value of the car. Um, even that is something we got to talk about. Yeah, so. whole, <laughs> that is a whole nother <laughs> level. That he sat with the guy and the guy kept saying like, what did I do for you to steal my car? Like, why did you steal my car? And this kid was like, let me keep it one He was like, it was a cold day. I don't have access to bus money. I had to walk where I needed to go. He said, I saw the car, the door was open, and it was an opportunity for me. And it's it, and I was sitting in there, because um, I already understood where he was coming from. And I was looking at the guy, like, let's see how this goes. And he was able to understand that. Like, yes, it was wrong, because we still have to do accountability that you stole this car. But the reasoning why you stole this car is as a result of capitalism, mm -hmm. and as a result of you not having access to basic needs that you mm -hmm. should do. So yes, I'll hold you accountable, but then we gotta talk about how society has filled this kid mm -hmm. that the only option they have to get from point A to point B is to steal a car. And then once you do that, you know, once you do that process, yeah. the way that the two people involved even look at accountability can look different. Very different. And then it might be, well, now you're coming to wash the car for a week instead of now you're going to jail for 10 and, years. And right? it was so crazy because the way they ended up legit by the end of the conference, and that was a hard conference. We didn't know how it was gonna go exchange numbers they sat and ate together um the guy was teaching how to swim he was like oh i'm gonna help you get into the kid was talking about how he wanted to do um engineering he was mm -hmm. like oh i got you on that like we ended the conference with them becoming friends you know what i'm saying and it was because that guy was able to slow down and go from what did i do to deserve this and why did you do this to me to oh snaps like this could be my kid and right. you didn't have access to this so how can i help you get access to it right I think that's a beautiful story and it's, it's really a good place to end on mm -hmm. um, because in just a little over 30 minutes we've we've covered a lot. A lot. I, I hope people listen to this, they go and check you out. Of course in the links hey. I'll link to your profile, your website, Thank also you. to Restorative Justice, Baltimore's yes. website, Restorative Response, Response. Yes. Baltimore, <laughs> our link to their social media and website as well. Anything else you wanted to part with? Like just continue to see people as whole people. That's my main thing um, with everyone. Go to therapy if needed. That's my last message out there. And Devin is amazing. I love you. And we're done recording. <laughs> we're done.
Z might as well get an interview at this point. Z 